The number one question on any would-be property investor's lips is, where should I buy? And there's an entire industry prepared to take your money in return for answering that very question. But how can you be sure that their methodology is correct? How many of them have been around long enough to have been put to the test? And if they have been in the game long enough, how many are willing to be held to account? In this episode, we're going to review predictions that were made 15 years ago. We'll look at what worked, what didn't in the original research, and how our thinking can evolve as a result. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're joined by the property professor himself, Peter Kalizos, and he's prepared to be held to account. In 2008, Peter published a book called Top Australian Suburbs, in which he identified 107 growth suburbs across the country. And I was fortunate enough to be in a presentation that Peter gave five years ago, where he reviewed his own performance 10 years after publication. And now, after 15 years, he's put his hand up to review not only where he got it right, but also where he got it wrong. So what lessons can we learn from this exercise about what really contributes to capital growth? And were there any red herrings? And what contingencies were needed but not anticipated? It's not often we get the opportunity to review property forecasts with the forecaster themselves. So we're really looking forward to this discussion today. Thank you so much for joining us again, Peter. Thank you, Veronica. Lovely to be with you again. Chris, how are you? I'm very well. And, um, you know, for people who haven't listened, so we got Peter back on it. I just checked now, episode 33, which was our first year of the podcast, which was over five years ago now. And, and Peter and I, a lot of what I believe around property actually comes from you, Peter. Back in the day, um, I used to work at a company called Property Planning Australia. Um, and I did courses with Peter. We did one for the Newcastle Jets. Um, didn't have much hair on my face back then. That was, you know, <laughs> back in 2012. And yeah, it was a real eye-opening experience. I feel like I've got amazing training when I didn't know much about property at all. And um, so it's always good to chat to you because it's like a trip down memory lane for me. Um, Peter, I think the last five years has been interesting, right? Like, I think it's, you know, not taught me a lesson, but it, it, it showed me how maze, you know, big things can happen that you wouldn't expect to happen, i.e. COVID, and how, you know, a change in work from home or hybrid work changes cities. And so- How's your sort of, I mean, over the last five years, it incorporates that and, and it also incorporated a bit of a downturn in Sydney, right? 2018, 19 was, it was a pretty scary time. If, if people remember back then with the Royal Commission, um, so over that last five years, do you feel like a lot of what your predictions held even more true or do you feel like there's some gaps of, because you couldn't obviously predict things like work from home and hybrid work? Yeah, well, interesting. The 15 years also includes the GFC and I didn't yeah. anticipate that coming. <laughs> That's right. You published it at the beginning of that year, didn't you? <laughs> I did, didn't I? I reckon yeah. it was launched one week before the GFC hit Australia. And, uh, who was to know? Oops. Who was to know? Um, now, what, one thing it shows me is that Australian residential property is very resilient. Not so much commercial property. I think we're going to see another big town downturn in commercial property, in particular office property. As you mentioned, Chris, 
working from home. Basically, bosses don't need it as much space as they did pre-COVID because some of their workers will be working from home some of the time, and so they need less space. So there'll be you will see that. Uh, and I've already seen some of the major superannuation funds not focusing on office property or retail. The big focus is on now what they call logistics. We used to call industrials like factories and warehouses. You know, a very simple example, JB Hi-Fi, for example, does not need as much retail space because they have a great online presence. But what they do need more of is storage space. And so you go online, oh yes, I'd like that TV, I like that iPad, whatever it is, click, and it's delivered to your door the next day. So you don't actually physically need to go to the bricks and mortar store. So that that certainly changed uh, during COVID. Even retail, even, you know, somebody my era is more likely to buy stuff online than I was before COVID. Um, the one stalwart, though, is supermarkets. Even during COVID, where you had a good chance of getting it at the supermarket, people would still go to the supermarket to buy their groceries. Was there outing? It <laughs> <laughs> was there a loud outing. <laughs> yeah. Other things they were happy to do online. So, uh, but residential property. One thing that COVID has has resulted in is more people going to the regions because some of them may not need to go to work every day. Like, you know, one of my daughters was a classic example. She was in Canberra right at the end of COVID and she wanted to come back to Adelaide mainly to buy a house because she couldn't afford to buy one in Canberra. Boss said that's fine. Even though the team and the bosses in Canberra, she was in Adelaide. And even now, she she's still working for a federal uh, government department. She is in Adelaide, but her work team is scattered all over Australia. So people can now live where they want to live and and work where the work is. So imagine, say my daughter, for example, she's earning a Canberra salary, but only on Adelaide expenses. I mean, that's that's a pretty good week. And do you think back in 2008, though, like the property fundamentals, work and, and distance from work were very key drivers of capital growth, right? And, and because time savings were so important, particularly for people who were more working in the city-based jobs and working longer hours to climb the corporate ladder, right? So that extra hour a day time saving meant a lot of that. They'd pay a lot of money for that, right? Um, that's not really there. That premium you pay for time, I mean, it, it is there for some roles, but is that really blown up your predictions or is the fundamentals still true that people want to value not just work, but lifestyle to those areas? You know, I, I'm close to the city, but also I'm close to cafes and restaurants and parks and established schools. And that outweighs, that still deserves a premium. So what I've seen is the city is not as important as it was being close to the city, but it is still the most important element. I mean, in 10 years' time, it might be different. And, you know, I don't know how productivity is going to go from working from home. Maybe in five years' time, bosses will say, no, you want to work from home? The maximum is one day a week. The rest of the time you're in the office, like it used to be. I'm not sure because, you know, Working from home is a huge social change. Like, where do you interact with people? Like, I've got four adult children, right? And, you know, when you went to uni, you interacted with other uni students, no problem. But when you, if you're working from home every day, where do you meet other people? Like, I, I, just, I just don't get it. Weirdly enough, I was actually talking to some friends of mine who've got 
their kids are at uni in first and second year. And they were saying that unis as a whole, not every uni, and I, you can tell me about Adelaide Uni, they've got a lot less face-to-face than they used to. So the kids aren't even meeting people in the uni campuses like they used to. So potentially, socially, that's going to have a knock-on effect into our working, uh, the way in which we work in, you know, the next generation or the next uh, decade or so as well. You know what I mean? They're getting set up differently for the working environment. Yeah. So where I'm at, the University of Adelaide, lectures and workshops and tutorials are face-to-face. Yep. But down the road at at UniSA, lectures are online. The other stuff is face-to-face, but... I mean, for me, I mean, yes, I love my wife, everything, but some of my best years of my life were at university, you know, going to uni with every intention of going to class, but you never actually went to class. You got stuck <laughs> down at the bar or playing pool across the road. You know, where, where are you going to have those good times if you don't actually go to uni? Very true. Do you think that that's why the, you know, full-time work from home, you know, suits the stage of life, you know, young kids, it suits personality, um, a certain, uh, but so hence why, and maybe it doesn't suit some people at all, right? They just really sh- struggle in that environment. And so do you think employments are going to work with that? You know, the, the employers, I mean, they're going to, you know, have maybe a hybrid model that you can sort of pick and choose what you want. Or do you think that employers are potentially going to go down the, you know, you actually have to be in the office four days because we're getting very mixed reports. Um, and I was at accounting office last week, um, and they were no, we work from we work from the office full time. Um, you know, well, my accountant is doing the same. They're a medium firm with almost a hundred employees. Yep, similar. Everybody's working from everybody's working from the office every day. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I think look at the moment, employees have the power because it is so hard to find workers. But as immigration increases, the shift will go back to employers, and then they'll decide what happens. Mm, like yeah. I said, you know, maybe, yeah, there is some flexibility, but the maximum is a day a week. Yes, you can pick the day, but the maximum is a day a week. The rest of the time, you're in, in the office. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. So let's let's go back to your research there, Peter. So I want to kick off with a spoiler alert, and that is that we know you got a lot right and some wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I still got a high distinction. Though. I may not have got 100%, but I still got a high distinction. High distinction. So that, that means 85% or more, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. For my old going back to uni days, right. So can you give us a high-level overview of the locations you chose, how those areas performed versus your predictions? And, and I guess a little bit of context of, you know, ch- any change from 10 years ago would be useful as well, you know, that might have been as a result of this stuff that you couldn't predict. Who could have predicted that? Cause, and then we'd like to have a, a bit of a uh, deeper dive to understand why, you know. So could you give us that high-level overview? Yeah, so look, if I break it down for every capital city, so in Adelaide, I well, let, let me take a step back. So I picked 20 suburbs in every major capital city and then two or three in Hobart, Darwin or and Canberra. And the deal was that the suburbs that I picked would do better than the average for that capital city. So in Adelaide, from 2008 to 2022, house prices went up 90%. On average, my suburbs that I picked went up 110%. Not a big difference. And a couple of them didn't do 90%, but the vast majority did. Brisbane actually was my best performer, where Brisbane house prices during that time increased only 76%, but the suburbs that I picked went 
up 120 percent. Huge. Uh, so it looks like my methodology works best in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And every single suburb that I picked did better than 76 percent. Canberra, I only picked two suburbs, Braddon and uh, Narrabunda. Braddon, not enough data. Canberra did 113% in that time period. Narrabunda, 111%, and I'm pretty close. Yeah. Darwin, I only picked two suburbs, Milner and Rapid Creek. They both did better than the Darwin average. Hobart, I picked Glebe, North Hobart, South Hobart. Not enough data in Glebe to make a conclusive analysis. Uh, Hobart did 140%. North Hobart, the one one that I picked, did 207%. So that more than tripled in value. And South Hobart, 130%, a bit below. Melbourne, one of our large metropolises. Average growth in house prices in Melbourne that time was 127%. Uh, my average for my 20 suburbs was 145%. So there were four suburbs there that didn't reach 127%. Close, but not, not close enough. Sydney... Sydney was the best performer, where Sydney house prices increased 163% in that time, and the suburbs that I picked on average did 177%. But, look, I need to apologise for all of those people that live in Western Australia. I got Perth horribly, horribly wrong, and I'm going to explain why. But... You know, we talked about Sydney doing 163%, Melbourne doing 127%, Perth did 23%. Wow. In 14 years, it only went up a total of 23%. My suburbs that I picked averaged 19%, and most of the ones that I picked did not even reach 23%. So that that was a disaster, but I look forward to trying to explain where that mistake was made. I think just even this, just... The talk, what the conversation we're having here is a bit enlightening. I mean, uh, you know, t- the, the elephant listener that has been listening for a long time probably knows that we don't just believe in cities. We don't just believe in suburbs. We believe in parts of suburbs and yes. you know, certain streets in suburbs. And your research isn't even going to that depth, right? No. You're basically just picking a suburb, let alone, you know, the three bed houses, the four bed houses outperforming the apartment market. And, um, and you know, and, and you, your fundamentals would go to that detail. It's just for the book. You, you you probably haven't gone to that detail. You actually, I can't remember the book, Pete, but I've got a copy of it. But does it actually talk about the style of homes that you look like in those suburbs? So the book, there's a bit in the book called, uh, which states the areas to focus on within that suburb and the areas to avoid. But I one thing, if I'm looking for a particular property to buy, there are the seven S's. Safe, steady, suburb, style, street, soil, which means land, and size. So, you know, you talk about, you know, three-bedroom houses versus two-bedroom apartments, one street versus another street, character period versus non-character period. You know, you can get to that down to that finer detail, and I do if I'm picking an individual property, but um, I hopefully I explain that well at the start of the book, the sorts of properties you should look for, the sorts of streets you should look for, basically wide streets, tree-lined streets and lined with appealing houses. I don't think city starts with S, but I'll let you get no, away with that no, one. No, it's yeah, um, the sound. It's the sound. I did, yeah. I did. Phonetic S. Um, <laughs> but we'll let that one slide. So what? Um, let's go. Let's start in the bad book. Sorry. So Perth, um, 
you know, there's a lot of heat on Perth right now. We've got, um, it's, it's, you know, affordability, you know, like you say, it's underperformed for a long time. There's people have probably been thinking Perth, like Brisbane a little bit, that's going to, it's going to boom, it's going to boom, it's going to boom. And, you know, it depends how early you got to that party, how many years you had to sort of wait around for any growth, right? And in recent years, it's come. Um, why do you think, you know, Perth, I mean, you didn't get it that wrong. You were only 19% versus 23%. Why do you think that, what didn't, what did you get wrong about Perth? Okay. So when I'm, when I talk about capital growth, so far as locations are concerned, you need to be close to the city or close to the sea. My problem was that I was too biased to the sea. Like I reckon 16 or 17 out of the 20 that I picked in Perth were beachside suburbs and even worse than that, I picked many down in the Mandra area. Right. And when I was doing my research, you know, it ticked a lot of the boxes, but one of the boxes that I, back then, I do now, one of the boxes that I didn't even imagine would need to be ticked was the industry of employment. Because if I had looked at that closely, there was 50 times the average of people living in the Mandra local government area, not just that suburb, that work in the mining manufacturing industry. I mean, that is huge. You know, even something a little bit goes wrong and everything goes skew if. If something goes a little bit right, happy days. But we had the GFC, we had, we've currently got this issue with China and the trade and, you know, iron ore and, and the other stuff that uh, Western Australia produces hasn't been going as well now in the last 15 years as it was back in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. In 2006, Perth property prices increased 45%. Well, you know, it hasn't done much since then, really. It's actually really interesting because, um, A, you've admitted your bias, you've recognised it, you've seen it. Um, well, I love the water as well. Personally, I, I love the water, so <laughs> I, I tend... I can see where that bias comes from, yep. but one thing that we've seen as part of COVID, being really close to the water can benefit you greatly. You know, yep. people with the money will pay extra or a premium to live on the Esplanade, one street back, two streets back, within walking distance. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting there too is that is we're not just saying that, okay, yeah, your Perth predictions underperformed and, and you're putting it down to that bias, meaning that you skewed um, a lot of a lot of suburbs chosen in that area. That is too heavily dependent on on one sort of industry group or two industry groups. Um, but also as a whole, I mean, the whole of Australia, any investor's got the choice to invest anywhere. And then that's, that, oh, it's, oh, it's daunting. It's probably overwhelming for too many people, which is why that question comes about all the time. Where should I invest, right? Perth is, is you know, a lot of money from the eastern states is going over there, investing there at the moment because, and there's that, and it could be a fallacy or it could be a reversion to the mean. I don't know which way to look at this, really, to be honest, to say that, oh, well, Perth has underperformed, so therefore it's only a matter of time before it performs again. And then you think, well, does every state and every capital city end up performing the same way over the longer period of time, or are there systemic differences in different states and, and capital cities? Well, over the 20-year period, going from memory here, Hobart house prices have increased five times since 2003. Right. Uh, Adelaide, Brisbane, and Canberra have increased four times. Sydney and Melbourne, 
just under four, and then Perth has only increased three times. Only three. I mean, that's still huge, but nowhere near as good as the other capital cities. So, look, the the basic premise is, you know, this is the big generalisation. All residential property will increase in value at some stage, all right? But it can make a big difference to your retirement or your lifestyle as to how quickly that growth happens. You know, the suburb of Mandra, property prices are below where they were 15 years ago. You'd be a pretty brave person to say, I'm going to go invest in Mandra. I mean, because I'd be thinking, what is the problem there? Just because it's so low doesn't mean it's going to increase. Why is it so, why has it actually dropped and it's worth less today than it was 15 years ago? That's what I'd be looking for. And if, if there are positive signs, go for it. But you need to do that fine grain research first rather than just say, oh, it's underperformed. Sooner or later, it's going to outperform. Yeah. Good luck with that. The thing is, what's interesting, I find too, is that certainly as, um, as I guess the Australian, uh, you know, the, what's the word that we, you know, we love investing in property, let's face it. You know, we, we have an obsession with it. Yeah. Have an obsession with investing and talking in about it, and yeah. we love talking about hence here, hence here we are today. <laughs> here we are exactly, talking yeah. about it, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so we, and also our government has set things up so that investors have been, you know, to some degree rewarded from the government in order to invest and provide invest uh, rental stock for this country, and obviously it's very much on the table with the. You know where that has been failed as a failure as a policy, but that's sort of another topic for another conversation. So individual investors have been encouraged to get into the marketplace, right? And so you make a decision on where you're going to invest, and then you go and put your money there. And I completely forgot where I was going with that question. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good one. I know it was good. I'm just trying right. to do the setup. Let, come let me chime in. It might help you. You know. Uh, some other research I've done, I call timing the market versus time in the market. Uh, and if you Google or if you go to the Pippa, the Pippa website, there's a there's a video on it, right? And what I said was, what well, you can you can invest in a capital city for 15 years and just leave it there, or you can buy something in a capital city for five years, sell it, go to another capital city for five, and then another. And yes. If you were, if you had a crystal ball that worked, then there were chances that so there were five hundred and twenty-five different outcomes, right? Eight, I think. No, I can't be right. Eight times eight times eight, whatever that works out to, five hundred and something. I think five hundred and twelve, maybe. Yeah, five. And um, but some of them, people lost money over that fifteen-year period because of the buying and selling costs. They had less money fifteen years later. In every capital city, you had more money than what you started with. So it's a safer option just to to buy and hold for the long term uh, rather than try and pick which areas are going to do well. Exactly. And the transaction costs are not just buy and sell. It's the CGT that stings you, Oh, the you, capital right? gains tax, yeah. 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 And, and I, I, I've got a bit concerned, actually. I heard about a... Uh, by talking about this, no one's going to know what it is. But anyway, a buyer's agent, right? Quite a big, prolific buyer's agent. Um, quite respected, I would say. It's um, not a new buyer's agent, not like a, a data-driven, been doing it for two years. This is 15, 20 years experience um, and a big business. 
Um, that's their strategy. They are buying and and they are they are they are transacting property. Um, and they are getting in and out of cities. And it just you know scares me that you know that they're moving in this direction because, like you say, like you are almost gambling people's investments. You're in gambling their retirement. You're gambling because if you only got to get it wrong once, um, and because the problem is like investments, like um trading shares, like what happens is, is you. You uh, you buy a share, it goes down in value. You then have a decision: do you sell, or and and try to buy something else, or do you hold on? And what ends up happening? One mistake trips you up, and then you trip into another mistake. Okay, I'm going to hold on. Oh, that was actually another mistake, and you're burning time because you're trying to outsmart yourself and you're trying to you know rewind previous decisions. And so, for example, they went for Hobart. Hobart didn't go up. Sydney went up. Okay, well, let's get back into Sydney. We'll do that. Sydney went flat. Now Hobart went up. And it's a really dangerous play. And so that, that's really good advice, I feel, for people who are trying to play this flip game is, you know, would you be better off just holding a property, not paying transaction costs? Just there is the risk worth the reward and um, you're sort of alluding to it, not. Um, and I think another thing, yeah, you go. I was going to say, we'll put the Pippa, the link for that Pippa video in the show notes. But it does also lead into the question I forgot to ask earlier, which was that... Investor behavior does distort markets to some degree. So in the sense that if you could just sort of look at a pure market based on owner-occupiers just trading and, and you know, moving and uh, selling down, selling up, blah, 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 um, changing suburbs when they get a better job and they got more income, uh, downsizing into apartments when the, you know, the kids move out of home. If you could just look at the way markets behave based on that pure human behavior – then I'm quite certain we'd see different outcomes here. But we are seeing the, you know, like for instance, Hobart had a massive investor interest for many, many years. And, you know, I, I can't necessarily, I'm not an expert in the Hobart market, so I can't tell you whether that meant that they overshot the mark and prices very well and truly overreached where they should have been, you know, why there was a lag in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. So was the market created by investors for investors? You know what I mean? Like you, you just don't know. But because you've got a, a whole of Australia to play with in this regard and that investor dollar isn't necessarily uh, localised, you know, like people, are, how much of that was in Brisbane for argument's sake? How much, how much was happening in Brisbane at the moment because it's still perceived to be affordable and safer than, say, you know, investing in Perth? And so I guess... You know, does your methodology look into that or are you looking sort of at fundamentals and say, look, that's white noise. Ultimately, in the more affordable uh, suburbs, they're going to attract investors for one reason, that is affordability. Whereas in these areas, because we haven't used the word gentrification yet, but that I think that's obviously where your methodology goes to, right? That in areas that gentrify, it doesn't take long before they're unattractive to investors. That's right, mainly because of the high price. It Generally... It's a bit crude what I'm about to say, but it's generally the people with the money that will drive the market. Investors are very price point conscious. Once it gets too expensive or the yield is not there, they'll leave it and go somewhere else. So that's why if I give an Adelaide example, because I know the Adelaide market really well, there's a stack of investors in in the outer suburbs like Elizabeth and Salisbury. If you don't know where that is, it's about 40 k's north of Adelaide. 40Ks may not sound a lot if you're from Sydney, but 40Ks is like the edge of the city. It's a huge, huge distance to Adelaide. <laughs> yes. So, and it's very cheap out there, but there's, and there's a lot of investors out there. But you look at some of the 
eastern suburbs of Adelaide, eastern suburbs of Sydney, eastern suburbs of Melbourne, there's not a lot of investors. And one of the reasons is because it's so expensive. Well, hang on a minute. When you say there's not a lot of investors, let, let, let's dig into that a little bit. Because say, for example, in Potts Point in Sydney. Okay. If you look at the proportion of uh, owner-occupied to investor there, it's actually skews to investors. Like there's actually 60, well, last time I looked, 66% rented out for argument's sake. So, but what we're not talking about is new investors. We're talking about people who have owned those properties for a long period of time. So, new investors aren't coming in and impacting prices. You know, old investors own the property. So, there's a difference. I just want to draw that distinction. And the other clarification I want to make is when I say there's not a lot of investors in houses. So, my focus is on houses rather than units. So, and, and the reason there's, there's a, a graph there or a table there that shows in every capital city except for Darwin, in that time period, houses outperform units, right? Now, I suspected that Darwin units did better than houses because there was a lot of new units that went up. So I went into the ABS data. Do you know how much unit prices have gone up in Darwin in the last 13 years? Zero. Zero. So what we had is a lot of new units, say, you know, 2007, 8, 9, 10, GFC comes, not so much, bang, now we finished. And so, you know, I I focus on the housing market because that's that tends to be dominated by owner-occupiers and owner-occupiers tend often will bid with their, bid or buy with their heart and not their head. And so, you know, they, they tend to spend the extra money. It's fascinating that you say about the Darwin in one area of Darwin, I'm presuming. No, no, the whole, this is the whole city. The whole city, right. The so whole units city. outperform, but that's purely by virtue of the fact that when the brand new stock hit the market, it was at a higher price point than what was previously, um, you know, existing stock. Because it affected in developers' profit. And, and in fact, developers could well have used that completely true statistic to support... <laughs> <laughs> Why investors should be buying units in Darwin. Well, that's right. They, they cherry-picked the data to suit themselves, yes. <laughs> All right. So what? tell us, you know, rather than cherry-picking then, what is the methodology that you use? I mean, what are the fundamentals truly? All right. So there's quantitative data and qualitative data. Quantitative data is about the numbers, right? Qualitative data is more subjective, a bit of opinion. So for me, the main steps that I look at uh, and and the the question you need to answer is, are the following indicators outperforming the state average? Is the median weekly household income increasing? Is the number of people with a bachelor degree or above increasing? Uh, is the percentage of professionals and managers increasing? Is the percentage of people that own their home outright or with a mortgage increasing? Is median house price increasing? And for me, the big one is, is the place of usual residence five years ago increasing? Because really, for an area to increase in value, you need a new group of people moving in. You need a wealthier group moving in. It's not like the people that live there suddenly become wealthy, unless you're in the mining industry, right? And, and then you can afford to pay more for houses. It's a different group, a wealthier group, which is a classic indicator of gentrification. And they want to buy, right? So they the, the owner-occupier versus the renter is going up. 
So I love that because the first three things are right. Income growth, right? Uh, our income's going up. Uh, it's education going up, which leads to income growth. Um, and then the third one you said is, is type of more executive roles, right? So not just people starting out. Is it more the, you know, the uh, higher end, you know, more advanced in their career? So it is getting to the 40-year-olds, the right, that are getting their forever homes. And there's a suburb, is it gentrifying from a, a starter suburb where you get in as a young family or is it, it to a forever home suburb? Because that's what a forever home suburb is where people aren't leaving which is your last point where they're staying for more than five years because they're putting their kids through school, they're investing in the community. And that also then leads to a lower turnover rate, right? So because if people are staying in their homes longer, then there are less properties coming on the market. So you're getting less supply every year. So you're getting stronger and stronger demand competing on a smaller supply. Um, You know, how do you, I mean, I, I guess, how do you pick the city though, Heath? Because <laughs> I think that's a really... That That's, is the multi-million dollar question, Chris. Yeah. yeah. That now what? Now I didn't do this research, but one of my students did some brilliant research on cities, right? Trying to pick cities. So she she did some correlation analysis. Now correlation means one thing happens at the same time as another. It doesn't mean one thing happens because another thing has happened, right? It they just ha happening at the same time. And she looked at all the major capital cities around Australia and household consumption was a big indicator of how well Brisbane was going to do, Brisbane residential property. The money supply was an in the key indicator of how well Sydney was going to do. Right. And something called state final demand, which in, in when we talk about countries, we talk about GDP, gross domestic product. When we talk about states, we talk about state final demand. And that was predominant in Adelaide, Perth, and Melbourne. So hey, look, even though I've spent probably 20 years focusing on suburbs, I should have been focusing on cities. Because if you look at my, say, the Sydney suburbs, the top 20 Sydney suburbs, there's only one of my Adelaide suburbs that outperforms the Sydney suburbs. So I would have been just better off if, if I knew how to do it you know, say Sydney's going to do better than any other capital city, I'm going to invest my money in Sydney. It almost doesn't matter which suburb. It does really. You're still going to focus on close to the city and the sea, but we're going to focus on Sydney rather than focusing on the micro fine-grained data of suburbs and not even consider cities. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Just on that point though, is it? do you think though that budget really matters here, right? So, um, okay, you haven't really got all the choice of all the cities, right? Because different price points in every city, right? So 
Okay, I think Sydney's going to perform the best, but my budget's seven hundred thousand, right? Um, oh, mate, I wouldn't bother that. So then, exactly. So then, you, you, yeah, I'd love to bet on Sydney, but then I really have to go where my my budget's not going to increase much. My income's not going up. I don't think I'm going to get massive upkits in my um, in a borrowing capacity for you know unless the something changes. If something changes, then it's going to affect the market anyway. So I can't wait. So you think that you've got to be really careful where you enter based on your price point that you've got? And So that's that's an excellent question you raised, Chris, because in my Sydney data, one of the suburbs that I picked was Woolloomooloo, but there's not enough houses in Woolloomooloo to come up with uh, reliable data. So all I've got is units. Now, in Woolloomooloo, in that 14-year time period, unit values increased 105%. So they're just... Just more than doubled, right? Which sounds great. But we've got Darlington went up 222%. Forest Lodge, 199%. Marrickville, 203%. Rockdale, 199%. These are houses, though. And so it's a very good point you raise. If you've only got 700000 I mean, I don't know the Sydney market that well, but again, I would still be focusing on houses rather than units because... You know, the data shows in every capital city, houses will perform better than units. I'm only comparing houses with houses here in each capital city, right? So if, you know, if you've got a certain limit and you can't afford to buy a house in that area, then look for somewhere else where you can afford to buy a house. Or at least a townhouse with some land. Not these bloody high-rise apartments, you know. I do know Sydney, Peter. And okay. So I guess what I would say to that is that I'm not going to disagree with you in broader, you know, broad ranging principles there. But Woolloomooloo is not a good suburb to choose if you're going to try to understand the unit market in Sydney. It's got a lot of a huge amount of social housing. It does, doesn't it? Yes. Just walking the streets, I could tell. Because one of the things that yep. I did writing the book is I visited and walked the streets. And doesn't matter which city you're in, you can pick the social housing, can't you? Well, yeah, you can. And there's an <laughs> enormous amount down there. And there's a lot of people who are sleeping rough. So, but it's close to the water. So, you know, once again, maybe your 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 and bias, the city. And <laughs> the city, your bias kicked in. But, um, you know, certainly places like Darlington also has a lot of social housing. However, it doesn't have, uh, there are units there, but it doesn't have a lot in the way of units by comparison. So, and it's very close to Sydney Uni. It's also, you can walk to the city from there. It's also got access to trains. It's it's like quite an amazing little um, pocket that you'd discover. You'd be surprised if you never heard of it because a lot of people haven't heard of it. Um, And then, but I also look, see, I uh, I do track properties over on a sort of more micro sense, right? So if I was looking at Surrey Hills, for example, and I had a budget of, say, 1.5, you might still scrape it in and buy some absolute little shitter house on a tiny handkerchief of, of land, or you can buy yourself a decent apartment for that money. And if you buy, you know, you really cherry pick the apartments, you will do better over time than if you'd bought a house in that same suburb for that sort of money. So I think the budget question is a really important one. And someone comes to me and says, look, I don't have a million dollars, for instance. You know, I'm like, don't even think about Sydney. Really, I mean, to be quite frank, I really encourage people not to think about Sydney if they're looking really sub one point two, ideally sub one point five, and that's because Sydney is Australia's most most expensive city. and And I think that's interesting about 
you can look at cities and say Adelaide versus Sydney, you know, Adelaide hasn't done as well over the long time when you're looking aggregate numbers. But if you actually drill down, you could probably find individual properties that have done equally well if you could pick the eye teeth out of it. But I think what's so fascinating by the research that your student did was that you're looking at what the correlation. So it's so am I right by saying, okay, if say Brisbane, just say consumer spending, is uh-huh. that was it what it was? So if consumer spending is ticking along nicely, then that property market is, is going to pretty much follow suit because that's like a, just a, a, a coexistent trend, right? The the money the money flow into Sydney. So I'm presuming that's that's a, sort of a GDP of or. Um, well, the money supply because Sydney is basically the banking and finance capital of yes, Australia. Yep. A lot of people work in that industry. Yep. You know, depending on how well we're doing financially will determine how well Sydney economy does and therefore Sydney property market. But Melbourne and Sydney are so similar in so many ways, right? Similar size, similar type of demographic. Um, So it's interesting that there's two correlations that are very, very different. So that Melbourne is aligned more with with Perth, which you would imagine was more around commodities and, and Adelaide even so perhaps. You know, so why would you say that? Well, I, you know, Sydney and Melbourne were very much alike until COVID. Right. Now, now I'm apolitical, right? I'm neither liberal or labor, but it's going to be death by Dan Andrews. Right. I don't, you know, I, I've seen, because I'm, I'm the oldest person on this podcast, right? So <laughs> I remember when Melbourne was not a thriving city and it took somebody like Jeff Kennett, who was a visionary, to really drag it out of the doldrums. In the 90s, when we had a recession, South Australia and Victoria had it even worse because there were some major financial institutions that collapsed. We had, I think it was the Pyramid Building Society in Victoria, which collapsed. Disastrous. And we had a lot of migration from Victoria and South Australia up to Queensland back in the 80s and the 90s. Um, But even though Melbourne might like to think it is... Australia's banking and finance capital. It it seems that Sydney is. A lot of the head offices, uh, the Asia Pacific head offices, are in Sydney rather than Melbourne. Maybe one of the reasons is because Sydney is closer to the rest of Asia than Melbourne. I'm not exactly sure why, but um, yeah, it was it was terrific research that she did. She scored a terrific mark. It wasn't 100, percent but it was very close to 100. percent But the next step is to find out. All right, so these factors are associated or correlated, mm. but are there are they leading indicators? Because if you can pick a leading indicator, then you can pick which city you're going to invest in. Um, but she just did a correlation analysis using uh, regression. But over your 15, there was wide changes, right? You had Perth, Darwin. But even if you compare Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, um, and Hobart, like huge differences over 15 years. And then within the, you know, even if you look at your top and worst performers and you were looking for the best ones, right? There's huge gaps between the top suburbs and the worst suburbs um, in those cities. And there'll be huge gaps between the houses and the apartments. And I think a lot of people in property, like you said, well, properties will go up over the longer term, you know, especially if you, but it does really matter that you look at it at a micro level, right? And you do go down from a city macro to a location. Su- and micro-location, you know, down to the suburb, down to the street, which side of the street, you know, 
You may not know, but in this street, one side is called one suburb, one side is called a different suburb. They look exactly the same, but they have a different name. That can make a big difference. Very big I, difference. I've got a classic on that. There's one street in, in Stanmore that one when the uh, the third run, runway was built in the 90s, and so one side of the street got the um, insulation, the aircraft insulation, ah. the other side didn't. <laughs> 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 Little things like that. Yeah, it's just, uh, local knowledge is so important. And Veronica, you and I are going to be at the Pippa Conference this Friday. We are. And I have that in one of my slides. Like local knowledge, which is based around locality, right? Local locality is so critical. You know, buying one house across the road from another can make a big difference. Maybe you're in a different suburb. Maybe it has school extra catchment. insulation. School Sorry? catchment. School catchment area. School catchment area. Not, certainly in Adelaide, that's a big one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what's, your, what's your thoughts, Peter, around there's a, there's a trend to um, people want to diversify, right? It's, it makes great investment principles, right? Um, not all your eggs in one basket. Um, people take that philosophy with um, the stock market. We absolutely make sense rather than betting on one company. Split it over 12 to 30, depending on what you you follow, right? How many, how much diversification you need. But a lot of people want to apply that same philosophy into the property market. Do you think it's, it's very dangerous to, to, to do that? It's rather than the number of properties and being diversified across different cities, you potentially, if that's at, you know, the risk of quality, do you think people should just be going for fewer? Or what's your well, sort of I'll belief? just use some of the numbers that you've had today. So if somebody came to you and said, you know, I want to buy $700,000 in this city and $700,000 in this city, I'd say, mate, put your 1.4 together and buy yourself a classy asset, one classy asset. Yes, so from a, a risk perspective, it is a greater risk, but um, you're going to get, you have a much wider variety and a much better selection of better quality property and then trying to buy for 700. Well, you're not going to buy anything in Sydney for 700, are you? Or even buying something in Adelaide for 700. You know, you got a long way, you're going to be a long way out of the city to buy a house for 700,000 in Adelaide. Well, it's, you talk about risk, and, and, and I think it's a perception of risk. And I think that's the problem that a lot of our in investment sort of, you know, myths or theories or whatever come from the stock market. And it does make sense to diversify in the stock market because you can. You can diversify you can, with right. a very small budget, right? But when you have one asset, you're choosing one property. And 71%, according to the ABS of Australian investors, do only end up with one property, then you've got to make it the best one you could possibly get, rather than be thinking that that's not a clever thing to do. And I think that that's the sort of like that turning that conven conventional wisdom on its head to say, well, yeah, it sounds logical, it sounds risky to only buy one, but actually more risky to buy two or more that aren't very good, you know, that certainly, I, I think too... You know, with regards to this research that you've done, and I love the fact that you do these presentations, which really pulls it apart. And I mean, you, you are you doing? Are you presenting this actually at the Pippa Conference? Is that yeah. Uh, yeah? Which is fabulous. And and my question and my challenge to the people in the audience, because there'll be many buyers agents, will be: Why don't you go and check all of your yep. forecasts or what you bought and see where you went right or wrong, and learn from those mistakes if you made any. And then move on rather than just think, you know, I'm only buying at Sydney. Why? Because that's where I am. Well, maybe maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe there are other options. Or if you are constrained to Sydney, then do your research to work out which are the better areas, the better types of houses. 
Yeah, I think too, I mean, it's like certainly in my buyer's agency business, I have no desire to buy in areas other than where I'm a local expert or where my team are local experts. And so, but but we're not so wedded to that that we can't talk about other areas to clients and then introduce them to other area specialists in those other areas. And quite often if someone comes to me with a budget that is not enough for Sydney, I'll say, well, look, you know, my understanding is that you could buy a quality property in in Adelaide, you could buy a quality property in uh, Melbourne, Newcastle, uh, Geelong perhaps, you could, you know, Brisbane. How about I introduce you to a really top-notch buyer's agent in each of those locations? You talk to them. It doesn't really matter where you buy. You know, as long as you get, you can get in any of those that that all that you'd all do well if you actually bought a great asset at any of those locations. It's a matter of finding a buyer's agent that you, if you have confidence, that is prepared to actually show what's you know lift the bonnet and basically explain their methodology and why they do the things that they do. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, Veronica, because I can see that you are a very trustworthy real estate agent. You know, the least trustworthy occupation in Australia. Yes. Real estate agents. No, we're second la- lowest. Underneath oh, who's, us, oh, who's lowest? Car salesmen. Used car salesmen, salespeople. Okay, <laughs> and I think advertising salespeople as well. Yeah. And real estate agents are number three at the bottom of the list. <laughs> and they haven't pulled out buyer's agents yet. And I wonder if they no, did. You got, you have, yeah, you have to sort them out, don't you? I'm not you sure whether we'd be better. <laughs> I'm not sure we'd be higher. Peter, I mean, over the last 15 years, I think you um, you said, was it Hobart up 200%, Sydney was up 200%, this is called whatever numbers, it doesn't Sydney really... was 163, Hobart 140, yeah. 140, right, okay. And then internally within that, you said like the inner west of um, like those Darlingtons and those pockets were 200 plus, right? Um, 200 plus, yep. And, you know, and you said Brisbane, you, you really outshot it because I think maybe your Brisbane numbers, I reckon... The affluent areas of Brisbane absolutely went bonkers over the last five years. The inner ring, old Queenslanders, we've had multiple clients that have bought five, six years ago that the prices have doubled. Um, yeah, places like Norman Park, which was 15 years ago, you know, I, I said was, afford- was affordable or buyable because one of my criteria was the median house price had to be around or below that of the capital city. Now, Norman Park's median house price is well above that of um, Brisbane. So is it, is it, what's your thoughts on the, you know, because I, I think it's a, it's a difficult question and I would love to hit you with it, but the growth rate's sustainable over the longer term. Like, so, you know, have as property had its day, are we going to be reliant, are we going to be getting, you know, this type of capital growth over the next 15 years? Or do you think that we've got writing on the wall in certain areas? Well, what's your, your take? Like, All right. Let, let me... Let me explain it this way, because I've been around a lot longer than you two. In the old days, we would buy property which would double in value in 10 years, right? And the yield was double digit. Today, we're still buying property that will double in value in 10 years, but the yield is single digit, and some of them are below 5%. Quite often, <laughs> quite often. Yeah. Even 2 or 3% is a good return, yeah. When I first started investing, it was not unusual to be buying property with a 10% rental return. Not unusual wow. at all, especially units. The problem is, of course, that as you get more capital growth, and that obviously puts more pressure on the yield, right? So um, rent rents are not as elastic um, as 
property prices because there's more things you can do to to improve your affordability when it comes to buying property that you don't have that luxury when you're just paying rent out of your income, right? So that's one of the problems there. And I guess it, the more, uh, yeah, so it's it's that, I don't know, it's that that ongoing challenge, isn't it? That you buy for capital growth, which we always recommend is what you do with property. Um, but it means that the better capital growth assets tend to cost you more in the early years. And it's a hard bit of pill to swallow for a lot of people. They can't, you talk about risk earlier. A lot of people feel that the risk is in the borrowing and the risk is in being out of pocket, you know, that they can't sort of uh, keep their eye on that bigger prize. And then other people will say, oh, you know, that's ridiculous that you you focus on capital growth, you know, and, and use negative gearing. And it's like, it's like, it makes me sort of laugh that argument. But, uh, but Pete, I don't think you've answered the question. I, I'm a great little politician there, I think, in terms of- Sorry, I, I'm trying to be as truthful as I can. What was your question again? Oh, are we going to continue to see capital growth? I'm very a bit tongue in cheek. Um, so, you know, the, obviously, you know, prices have gone up dramatically and doubled and our yields have come down, but, you know- in terms of it sort of lasting, this this sort of sustainable growth is that sustainable, what you're saying? Sustainable, yeah. Like and 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 what's the you know, some because there's lots of things driving it, right? Like, you know, you say population growth, productivity, um, you know, scarcity, income growth, etc. So, you know, being around so long, I do think there's a lot of wisdom there to, to show that there's you know, that the fundamentals will stay true. It may not mean all properties grow at a, a crazy rate, but the fundamentals should still hold over the longer term. And I guess maybe just explaining that out, how over the next 15 years, the fundamentals will still be the fundamentals and what the growth rate is hard to know, but like growth should still be there, I guess would be my take, but what's your belief? Yeah. I mean, you just need to look at what's happened around the world in more mature property markets where they've been going for hundreds of years. And some people have just like buying a home, they don't even think about it. It's just not going to happen. Right. And so... You know, in time, maybe not in my lifetime or your lifetime, that will probably happen in Australia in particular, in Sydney, where property prices increase so much that unless your parents give it to you or, you know, it's come down to you after they passed away, you're not going to be able to afford it. And I, because I've seen it, I've seen it happening in other more mature property markets, you know, like say London or Paris or New York, you know, some of the big metropolises, I I think the same will happen here. You know, in the 1950s, you know, heaven forbid to think that your wife would go to work so that you could afford to get a bigger mortgage to get a bigger home, all right? But look what's happened. Heaven forbid that in the, eight, the 1980s, we thought that a 5% deposit would be enough to buy a house when it used to be 25%. Heaven forbid that your mum and dad will actually help you with the deposit to buy out. Who knows what will come up? I mean, some sort of initiatives have continued to come up in other countries around the world to allow some people to buy property. So I have no doubt that property will continue to grow in value. Unfortunately, there will be less people that will be able to afford it. Because I say again, it's the pe- it's not just the people with the money it's the people with the access to the money that can borrow the money that will drive the market. So <clears throat> apart from anything else, Australia is quite a unique market. It doesn't function the same way other countries' property markets function. Um, but also, and there are some new initiatives, I mean, even in the government with their their um, equity, uh, equity. Yeah, help to buy. That's it. Right. 
Um, you know, we've had uh, Evan on from Longview and they've they've come up with a shared equity um, product. So, you know, that's like the next sort of iteration, I guess, of, of, of how else can we get people into the market whilst prices keep going up. But I guess what's interesting now, I look at how much the emphasis is on building a lot and building quickly, which is going to be high rise, going to be units, multi, you know, you know, multiple um, dwellings. It won't be houses. So the proportion of houses on blocks of land available, even townhouses on sort of their their parcel of land available, is going to shrink. And so that's going to be even more and more scarce. So typically, what happens with scarcity? I guess you've got um, scarcity brings growth and demand, but also I guess you look at the bell curve and you go, well, scarcity also puts you into that sort of tiny tip at the end of the bell curve where only a small proportion of Australians can actually afford to participate in that market as well. So I guess there's lots of those factors at play. And if you're looking at from a pure investment point of view, you know, I think that, um, you know, we're talking about investors buying houses here rather than buying apartments. And certainly the whole investment space is going to change quite dramatically with the bill to invest coming in and also with governments re-entering the market in terms of provision of rental stock. So so I think that's going to fundamentally change things a lot in, in terms of the multi-dwelling sector. Um, and in terms of houses, I mean, yeah, I guess it could just mean as less people can afford it, then there's less of a market or it could mean that it just becomes more in demand. Have you got any thoughts on that? Houses as distinct from everything else that's available. Yeah. So I certainly do like your logic, Veronica, where there's going to be a lot more smaller dwellings built and high rise because they can build them all quickly. So houses, houses will be in shorter supply. Even if demand is the same, price will go up. You know, you look now, if money wasn't an issue, the vast majority of Australians would want to live in a house, mm. three-bedroom house or four-bedroom house and some land if money wasn't an issue. But for many for most of us, money is an issue, so we have to make compromises. And so some people have to buy townhouses, some little flats or units, and some apartments. But again, it's the people with the money or the access to the money that will drive the market. And I can see certainly house prices continuing to, to increase probably at the same rate. But let's not forget new housing only adds about 2% to the additional stock. And so it's going to take a long time for us for them to make a dent in that market. And the other thing is, you know, this housing, I'm not going to call it crisis, this current housing situation was brought about by COVID where there was lots of demand, home builder, but no supply because all the builders were at home. They weren't allowed to build, right? So lots of demand, no supply. And so what's happening is it, it's catch-up. Unfortunately, there have been some victims because builders signed fixed price contracts back there and I don't know what's happening in Sydney but certainly in Adelaide and Brisbane and Melbourne there are you know reputable building companies going under because they can't afford to build so you know this is a unique situation I don't ever remember it like this because we never had a COVID where you you couldn't build any more houses because you were told that you had to stay home um, yes we've had incentives before first home buyer grants and stuff like that but we've never had supply come to a halt and even if you could, because some states were less severe than others, there was no supply of material. You know, the factories overseas have shut, so you can't get any structural steel. You can't get any concrete. You can't get any tiles from Italy. Peter, what's your sort of take on um, 
you know, there's been this uh, lack of listings or lack of stock on the market, yeah. right? And I, I've been hearing that same thing for probably the last five or six or seven years. And, you know, Domain did some really interesting research. Um, the average length that someone's in a house has doubled, right? Over the last 15, 20 years, I can't remember what it was. It was from seven years to 14 years. It, um, you know, we're living longer. We want to stay in our houses. We don't want to go to aged care, et cetera. So what's your sort of take on the turnover of property that people are almost getting stuck in homes. I mean, they would love to upgrade to a bigger house, but to upgrade, it's too big of a jump. I've got to take on the mortgage. I don't want to downsize to an apartment. And so um, if anything, our, our stock's going to naturally just, if we're going to talk about houses, it's really just going to keep grinding to a halt because people haven't got the ability to keep moving up the ladder and, and transacting property, let alone the transaction costs. So, you know, yes, there's limited houses, but every year that's less houses are, are transacting, the turnover rate's reducing. Well, as building new cost is costing more, people and and the transaction costs, buying and selling, right? Stamp duty and stuff. People are saying, well, it's just better to stay in home. Well, let's just renovate, or if we can, let's extend, and we'll just stay here. And so that's becoming more and more of an option to many people, um, especially now when construction costs have significantly increased and you know interest rates today on average i don't know i'm guessing might be say six and a half percent whereas two years ago they were two and a half percent so what why would let's say you got a fixed rate loan at the moment why would you sell a property now paying only two and a half percent interest to go and buy one and pay six and a half percent interest because for a start you won't be able to buy one as expensive because you can't afford it anymore if you just keep your mouth shut and it don't say anything to the bank, well, you know, and you're paying your two and a half percent, everything is fine, you know. But as soon as you open up your books and you're earning basically the same income, but you're going to pay a higher interest rate, you, your your borrowing capacity shrinks. It's also, you know, if your choice to renovate versus move comes down to very much where you are located. And you know, obviously, the cost of uh, of upgrading and staying in that location, and I and I know certainly in you know where my buyer's agency is based in inner Sydney, you know, there's certain pockets. I talk about Balmain a lot about on this podcast, but I mean, it's such a good example of this where people actually live in Balmain. Their first property there might be a tiny little two bedroom semi or a terrace, and then they go, oh, "I never want to leave." Right, so they're looking at ways that they can basically get in there with a you know with a b- bigger pump and basically make it bigger. Um, and they'll do anything they can to stay in that area if they can, um, including, you know, go vertical. I mean, there's there's limitations, obviously, with the council, what they'll let you do. But, you know, we know a lot of people that will, they will exhaust all of that before they will look at upgrading and moving. Dead right. Because they're so wedded to their location. And particularly, I think, once you've got kids at school, that makes it even more hard-baked. You know, it's it's really difficult for it happens, and kids are quite resilient, and they'll cope with moving schools. But but typically, when it's once the first kids at school, it's you're even more baked into an area. So there's lots of other reasons why people would stay and renovate. I think versus versus move. And then on Definitely. the other side, don't downsize. Right? There's a downsize a window. It's like when you're fit, able, active, you got that vitality. You, you feel like, oh, I'm going to meet new friends and move to it. You know, you've got that. But then when you get over that, you're like downsizing moving to an area changes in i could actually just make my home work for the next 20 years and the kids want to keep you in the home because it's their inheritance and 
you know, they install a lift rather than selling, et cetera. So yeah, I think it's a really, it's a good thing for people to think through that, you know, it's, I guess if people live in their houses longer and they live longer and people don't sell out of their houses, that's less supply on the market that it's earning over it. That intergenerational wealth story that when they do die is going to be massive in the 2030s because that wealth has to transition down. And if anything, the kids will just leverage that money would be my belief is once that money passes down, it, it will multiply. Um, so Pete, can you end us with a property Dumbo? Cause, um, yeah. It's always a nice way to end the episodes. Uh, this comes from my father. So we were sitting around the table with some of my friends. So we were in our 20s and one of my friends it, he had the opportunity to buy a really top class asset for 500000 but he missed out for 5000 And my father was a real estate agent, so he'd been in the game a long time. And this was, one of, this was I reckon, the first time that I heard my father swear. He said, why would you miss out on a quality half a million dollar asset for, and I won't mention the word, 5000 Why would you do that? So I think the lesson there is if you're going to hold property for the long term, right, let's, say, let's call it this $500,000 property. What difference does it make if you pay five hundred and ten if it's going to be worth a million dollars in 10 years' time? Because statistically, since World War II, that's what property has done on average. Some capital cities do better than others, but it's around, you know, 7% per annum, which means it doubles in value in 10 years. So what difference does it make if you pay a little bit extra for a quality asset? I think a client bought last week and um, it was pre-auction and he's, he's missed out a few times, but this absolute cracker came on. This was not going <laughs> to say the location. But this was, it was an apartment actually in Sydney, um, but it was, you know, top floor, massive north facing view, great floor plan, big parking, quiet street, great privacy. Like this was a, this is by far one of the best apartments I've seen, right? And it was way better than what he missed out on. And we literally spoke for half an hour, mate, mate, just trying to get him to, because he was trying to set his limit um, at like mid one fours. And he ended up getting it for low one fives. Um, and it was like, it, cause he, if he, he, cause if he went in there, like, and I'm talking like, it's like 5%, right? It's under 5% we're talking here. If he went for like 1.47, he wouldn't have got it. The person would have got it at 1.5. And he'd be at the auction next week and next month still looking. And he probably wouldn't find one as good as this one. Yeah. And, and, well, and the price he paid still, in my view, it's still comparing to what they're selling and new stuff in the area. It's still amazing compared like, um, and so. Um, yeah, it's, it's so interesting that, that, you know, you want to get a good deal and you want to get a great asset. Well, you might not get a great deal, but as long as you've got a great asset, that's the thing that you end up holding. That's the thing that, you know, it doesn't really matter what your deal was 15, 20 years ago. Right. So it's that price becomes irrelevant. I'm a man who puts his money where his mouth is and I've done the same, you know, if I like our home that we currently live in, um, there was a price range and I said, I'm not missing out on this beautiful home. And so I gave them uh, the the figure they wanted right at the end of the price range, not above the price range. And people were saying, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you try and bargain? When you see a quality asset, you've got to jump on it. Otherwise, you'll be searching for weeks or months and you may not find something like that again. I think there's a bit of a caveat to put in here. I mean, and that is that you do have to assess technically what it's worth, right? So... So you've got to have some sort of framework for choosing whether you're going to pay a premium or not. Like a premium on what? Like, you know, just because the agent 
is guiding it or ask for it. You know, you obviously, your experience, you've been a property decades, you know, like you, you can assess a property, A, for its asset caliber, you know, how good it is, and B, what what is a reasonable price to pay in the market? And we coach our clients through that. We want to make sure they're very clear on where the data says this property should sit. And then how good is that asset? What's the market doing? How, how uniquely does it suit their needs? And then what's that premium you're prepared to pay in order to secure it if you have to? And and I've done the same thing when I bought my property. You know, I, I paid the top end. I didn't want to pay that, but I had done the research first. So I knew that if I had to, I was within the range and I was okay to go to that level. You know what I mean? So it's, it's whereas people can go, oh, you just throw anything at it because it's really good and it's going to double in 10 years. You know, I think that there's some parameters around that are really important for individuals who want to do this themselves without guidance. Or if you're using a buyer's agent who just has says to you, you just got to go in hard because otherwise you're <laughs> going to miss out. You know, um, I was talking to somebody recently who actually – was a judge on um, one of those industry awards, right? And they judged the buyer's agent category. And I've judged a number of these over the years. And they were saying that, you know, of the 10 entries that they had seen for, and and the, one of the questions they were asked to answer was, you know, give us an example of your pricing methodology and how you, you know, how you advise your clients around pricing. And four of them didn't even answer the question. That's four buyer's agents who all thought they were good enough to win an award couldn't answer that question. And I went, what I what I want to know is did they become finalists? Because in some of these awards, it's like everyone who enters becomes a finalist. Everybody wins a prize. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, yeah, they get it on this little green their little green ribbon for being a participant. Thankfully <laughs> I was I was advised that no, people who couldn't answer that question were not going to be finalists. Very Thank good. God for that. But um but you know, that's 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 a danger out there at the moment, unfortunately with a low barrier to entry. Yeah, absolutely. So to caveat that as well, Veronica, I've been trying to get into work with a buyer's agent for many months. Um, and, you know, whenever a client asks me around what's a property worth, that's impossible for me to answer. That's, that is hours of research. I'm saying hours. It's knowing what's selling on the market right now, right? What else is on the market? How scarce is it? How's it compared to what sold six weeks ago or two months ago? What's on, you know, it's, there's so much that goes into that, Veronica, right? That you do and that local knowledge of being able to compare assets like that sold or, you know, the conditions that something sold under that was actually, yes. the reason that sold was actually a, a quick sale that, and it was actually a really good buy. That's not going to be reflective of its actual value. So well, the neighbor bought it and they fought with someone else who was a real alpha male. And <laughs> that's right. And so it's really hard to know the value and it's, 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 and so that's, that's where I think it's, um, you know, you need that expert knowledge, not only with other parts, but valuing property is really hard. And, what happens is I think people naturally go to their, they want to get a good deal. So they naturally undervalue it or they naturally get anchored to the range or 10% above the range. And then they could have got it for 14% above the range, but they were so, you know, trying to get a great deal plus get a great asset. And, you know, it ends up making compromises in time if you want to buy. So thanks so much for the chat, Peter. I'll actually Please see you any Friday as well. I'm on the... I'm on the Pippa panel for one Excellent. of the things. We'll so, look forward um, to catching up with both of you on Friday then. And we'll see yeah. you on Friday. Thanks, Pete. See you. See you later. Thank you, Peter. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions 
at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our